Here we are now with another episode of the Andrew Lake Podcast. Today I'd like to talk about this concept or this idea which I call the perception palette. And this really is critical. It is so important to understand. And it can drastically shape the way you compose your perceptions. It's a great way to enter into a conscious way of constructing a collection of perceptions if you don't know what that means if you've never thought about it you don't know how to go about doing that and this is the concept for you this is what you need to understand and this came up when we were talking about recently the album scenes from a memory by dream theater i did an album review And there was a lot in that. But one of the small things, one of the rabbit holes that we didn't go down, was this question, is it cheesy music? Or is it juicy music? Is it really good music? And I noted there that the difference for me was because of my sound palette. It was my music palette. So sound and music... They're all part of your hearing perceptions. And your musical palette is a great example of this perception palette concept idea. And there's also sight. And there's also taste. And we can talk about those. And a bit later on, I'd like to talk about some artists that I like. We can talk about some of the painters, which I would just like to talk about. And they are related to this, because a painter has a palette. A painter has a range of colors that he uses, he or she, which is more narrow than the spectrum of colors. Now, there is this old question, can you condition yourself to like anything? Or do you just like what you like and there's nothing you can change about it? Now, both those questions are wrong in that they force a duality. And when we talk about taste, there are certain things that you can't condition yourself to like. Rotten food. Excretions. Certain things that are tasteless or texturally unable to be eaten. And that is the biological condition that you're in. That's your biology. And then there's also the evolutionary biology, which is that of humans. You have a human biology. So there's a biology of you as a living thing as opposed to a not living thing. And then there's the, and that goes, that goes way back. Your history for that is as old as the time when you evolved from a non-living thing to a living thing. 
the primordial soup. In the ancient times, when there were just some cells bubbling about in a pond. Millions and millions of years ago. If not longer, I'm not really sure on the exact time scale. So that's biology and physics, or the physics, the physical, the living and the non-living. And then you have your conditioning as a human being, which is what human beings have been eating throughout the ages, has conditioned you to have your taste buds now. And then there's also a generational and a cultural conditioning or composition, for want of a better word, which is not just your humanity, but it's your cultural background. And that depends more on what continent you're on. Now, certain continents have certain cultures and certain histories to them. It's like that old thing of why is it that Indian people just like spicy food? Why is it that the Indian people can always handle it really spicy? Well, they're in a different continent to us. And then there's also the conditioning of within your life. There is a range that you can adjust your taste buds to depending on the foods that you have eaten in your life. Not just as a child, but even as an adult. And that range has a degree of flexibility. Every stage of this, every component of this has a depth and a range of adaptability, of change, of how much it can be stretched or skewered or put out, put in. And this idea of taste buds and what tastes good and what doesn't is something you should be aware of. There's a lot of food available now which is high in sugar or high in salt or high in fat. And the food that is available makes it very difficult to have a healthy diet. And this process, this age-old, oh, I want to get fit and healthy, oh, I'm going to start a whole diet, this whole thing is to do with the taste perception of how the food tastes. And your palate is something that needs to be addressed. The conditioning of your tastes and your taste palate is the thing that needs to be addressed. And a lot of health diets, they don't address it. They simply say there's healthy food and then you have your cheat day or you have your indulgence food. You have your naughty food. And what that fails to recognize is that a healthy food diet and even a bland, simple diet can taste very good. It can feel very good to eat. Now, there are many yogis and mystics and sages throughout the ages who lived on very basic diets. Very basic. Just one bowl of rice, plain rice per day, that sort of thing. Now, that's one end of the extreme. And there are many religious and cultural implications to that diet. 
But for at least some of the yogis, the reason they ate such a simple diet was because it was such a big effect to them. Such f- food had such a tremendous opening for them. And when you open your awareness to the tastes that you have and the processes that occur when you eat food, then the digestive process becomes something very different to what you and I and the modern person experiences. And the depth is staggering. The depth is astronomical, really. When you eat a big, heavy meal, a fatty meal or a high sugary meal, and then you have a feeling or you get a headache or you feel a bit stuffy in the guts, well, the opposite of that by an extreme is what the yogi feels when he has a bland bowl of rice, as he has eaten every day for most of his lifetime. So be aware of this food palate and the tastes that you have and the conscious choice to be going into your diet and making your diet conscious for the purposes of, first of all, healthy eating, but also for the experience of eating. That's another thing that these a lot of diets don't address head-on, which is the actual experience of food in the mouth. Now, that is a sacred experience. That is really something precious. And that is something to craft, to be careful with. And the best way to start going about doing that is to cut out all the junk food you eat. Now, the, the musical equivalent was when we were talking about dream theater, and I said that sometimes I listen to dream theater and it sounds so cheesy. And other times I turn it on and it's just, wow, this is such a banger. Now, in your music collection, there is a range of sounds. There are a range of bands. And when you hear something which is too far outside of that range, you're not going to like it. And your tastes have changed. Well, maybe they haven't changed. Maybe they've been the same. And everyone has a different range, not only different in what is in the range, but also different in how wide the range is. And it depends on what you've been listening to recently to what you listen to now. And you can become sensitive to how quickly that changes over. One thing I've been doing, which has helped me with this, has been to really listen to the decision I make as to what music I listen to. And I always stop and ask, now, before I put something on, just have a few minutes of silence and say, what do I want to listen to? And say, what is the right thing to listen to now? What is the thing that suits my mood And really aligning up that with what I listen to and what I put on has been great for me, becoming sensitive to how my moods change and also lining up the music with my moods so that they are appropriate for the time. So music palette, sound palette is a big one. And there are some sounds in music that are always going to sound aggressive. 
There are going to be sounds that are always going to sound soft. There are certain sounds that are always going to be fast tempo. A fast tempo is going to be a fast tempo. That's always going to have a certain effect. Because the biological and the physical and the cultural conditionings and evolutionary implications are all there as well, just like they are for food. And you could even make the case that there is a lot of pop music and that's like the trashy junk food that we eat. And this pop music is not very good for you, really. Not very, very good for your emotional or audio well-being, your sound complexion. But that's a bit of a rant. I don't know if I want to go on that. Of a, there's this, there's this thing lurking in the back of my mind, which is pop music is shit, and I don't know if I can really do that rant because I do listen to pop music, and I've had glorious moments with pop music. So I don't know if it really. Now's not the time for that conversation, but it's just something to be aware of within this context of the sound palette. And you can consciously go into reconditioning your sound palette and changing your music collection. And also having phases. Go through phases. Say, I'm in this sort of a phase, or I'm in this sort of a phase. Or listen just to, to just a few bands over and over again, and then change. And be conscious of it. And even try it. Try out, I'm going to listen to all soft music for a couple of days, and then one day, boom, put on the heavy metal. And see if there's a reaction there, or there's a sensitivity there, or there's something there. Maybe, maybe heavy metal already causes a reaction for you. Who knows? So sensitizing yourself to your perceptions is very important. And you need to understand also that this is different to the spectrum. When we talk about the spectrum, that's everything. When you have an entire range of all the colors, that's like all of the music. And your palette is a smaller, it's a more narrow taste in that. It's a more narrow collection and the reason we have this this palette and we don't just open up to everything is because we well i don't know why is that maybe there is something to be said of having a palette but then also not having a palette and being able to listen to any type of music at any time being able to eat any kind of food at any time. Maybe there's something to be said that the palate is somehow restrictive. Now, when it comes to art and painters, and you can really see this, because the painter has a palate quite literally. It's that little white thing that they hold in their hand and they squeeze a few different tubes out of paint onto there, and then the other hand is their paintbrush. You know that classic image of the painter with the palette and the paintbrush? Well, that's, that's what's happening here. That's the color palette. And artists, they have this thing where it is almost like they become known for their palette. They find their own palette. And you can get a sense of this if you, if you really look and compare artists who are 
in the same style from a similar period. And you notice that this palette, it's, a, it's, a, it's not the full color spectrum. Now, in a painting, you wouldn't have as much range of colors as you do in reality. You have a more narrow range, but that's what makes a painting more pleasing. That's the charm of art. That's the perception trick that the image of an artist, the image of a painting, does for us. And there's still rules to it. You still have to have a dark color. You have to have a light color. You have to have mid-tones. You have to have skin colors. You have to have solid colors. So there's a sort of gestalt or a pattern to a... palette and each painter fills theirs and has a wide a different range as well as to make their art look more alive and to have an essence to it when you look at an artwork and you see oh it's got an essence there's something unique about it and i know that 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 is of that artist i can tell that of that artist's someone like rembrandt now rembrandt has a lot of unique things to him, his brush styles and his subject matter. But he also has, one of the components of his originality is his color palette. It is also determined by what paints were available in his day, what the pigments were like, and how he used them. But if you look at a Rembrandt, you can see, yes, that's a Rembrandt. And some artists, like Gottfried Hellenwein, he has a very narrow palette. And that's very dramatic. And his subject material is very dramatic as well. And he does these huge, hyper-realistic paintings. And he's a modern artist. So he's taken this concept of the colour palette and he's pushed it to an extreme. Or he might just have a very, very sharp contrast with a very big light and a very dark dark and then just some red through it it's a very narrow and they're very dark paintings and he's got children holding guns and there's some gore in there so his palette suits his style and it's part of his style and his subject matter his subject material suits his color palette they go together to make this this characteristical style or sense of this artist gottfried helenwein and you can see this if you what i was saying before about comparing artists from a similar style and you see how they're different and it's very subtle. So this is why you do a comparison, because you can see that their paintings are similar, and even their subject material might be similar, but their color palette is slightly different. It's just that little thing. It's that fragrance. It's that little thing you can't put your, you can't quite put a word to it. So some of my favorite painters who you can do this with is one is Serge. Marshenikov and compare him with 
Ademir Sedov. Now, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce these names, and I, real, I will spell them in the description so you can look them up. But this Serge Mashenikov and Ademir Sedov, they're Russian painters, and they paint these sort of modern, hyper-realistic, but with a Renaissance twist, portraitures of these beautiful girls. And they're really beautiful pictures. And they're, they're modern. And there's something in there, in that color, which gives an eerie sort of feeling to it. It's almost like you're in this very old room. And some of the paintings do look very somehow old, but they're done in such a modern way with this hyper-realistic style that it makes... It's really an original spark. And of course, there are beautiful girls in there. And this might say a bit a bit too much about me. <laughs> Maybe sharing my opinions on art says too much about me. <laughs> Maybe it does. Another comparison to make would be someone like Mike Dargas and Robin Eli. Now, these are modern painters, and they're into hyper-realistic, but without so much of the Renaissance twist as with the Russians that I was previously talking about. So Dargas and Eli have these subject materials where they're they're sort of like portraits, but they're interacting with something. So it's either with plastic or with honey. And it's really, really realistic. It's a, it's a hyper-realistic, more detail than a photo, more detail than reality. That's the idea behind hyper-realism. And they're both similar in style, but they have a different palette. And if you compare them together, you can see... Ah, that's the difference in the palette. They both have dark colors. They both have light colors. They're both portraitures. They're both subject material, which is interacting with objects in certain ways. And there's a bit of a, a strangeness to them with what the characters in these paintings are doing with these objects. But still, there's something different between these two painters. There's something different which I can't put my finger on, and that's the color palette. And if you look at some of the older painters, someone like from the Surrealist period, which is a beautiful period in art, which I just love. I love Salvador Dali and all those guys. I got so much out of looking at Surrealist paintings and so many ideas from those characters. If you look at someone like René Magritte and Ives Tanguy, that's a good example of the same period and same sort of style, but different color palette. René Magritte is very famous. He's the one that did that uh, portrait with the apple over the face. You remember seeing that one? It's just a man standing in a suit. And there's an apple right in front of his face. And it was one of the surrealist icon, the iconic images of the surrealist movement. 
And then some of the painters that are sort of surreal, but not really. They're also they're sort of like a mix between realism and surrealism would be Harry Holland and John Curran. Now, they're not surreal like the traditional surrealists like René Magritte or Aves Tangai or Salvador Dali. They're more into sort of figure painting and the nudes, but there's still something strange about them. There's still something a bit quirky. They're not realistic in the real sense, like a hyper-realist. There's something funny there, but they both do it. And their use of light is different, not just their colour palette. But if you look at their paintings, you can see that there's a very big difference in their colour palette. And if you haven't got it by now, and you've done all these comparisons by now, try Georgia O'Keeffe and Henry Matisse. I don't know if they really go together as the same period, but they are at least painters that had a, a use of a lot more primary colours. And they're more solid colours, and they're more simple colours. But they're still quite different. And their use of line and their subject material was all very different. So I don't know if there's really a comparison there. But if you look at these as a pair and then compare them to the other pairs, you'd be starting to get a sense of a colour spectrum or a, a colour palette, sorry. And then the spectrum, well, the, the spectrum is all of these artists together. So for us to get an idea of the, the spectrum, we'd have to take the paint tubes from every single one of these artists and then line them all up together and we have this big long line of paint tubes and then we say well that's the spectrum and then we say okay Marshenikov this is your palette Eli this is your palette René Magritte this is your palette John Curran this is your palette and each time they would they would come down and pick out their paintings their paints and some of them would overlap. There would be similarities. Because we'd also have our oils and our pastels and our fluoros and our acrylics or our watercolours, depending on what artists. I don't know if there's any watercolour artists that I've mentioned here. But that's another part of the paint story, which is the quality of paint, the type of paint, the pigment in the paint, the brand of paint. And really, you can compare any artist. You can compare any colours, any set of colours with any other to get a sense of the palette. And this really is critical to understand. It goes far beyond just art appreciation. Because today, what we have is a culture where everything is loud. The music is loud. There's lots of compression on the music. The flavors are loud. There's, in a sense, compression on the flavors that we eat. And even more so with our eyeballs. Now, to look up these artists... Chances are you're doing that on the internet. And I've found a lot of these artists on the internet. Some of them I have seen in real life. But most of them I'm aware of because of the internet. 
And when I look at the artworks, it's on a screen. And the sensitivity of my eyes and the range of light and dark is being conditioned by that screen. And I'm more and more these days staying away from the screen for that reason. And I feel there's a lot I would say about the palette of sight. I could write a book about it. In fact, I will write a book about it. I'm going to write a book about it. There's so much to say about it, and it's so important. But at least understand this concept of the palate and be aware of what you've been eating recently, what you've been listening to recently. And the concept really applies to all sorts of things. Maybe it applies to your relationships. Is there a palate of the type of people that are in your life? Is there a palette to the type of ways you move your body? Is there a palette to the sort of books you read? And can you open yourself up to new books? Can you be aware that you've been given this book, which is very far outside of your normal reading range, and you have to say, well, I have to be careful with this because it's quite different. And could you even go against that and say, I'm going to expand my reading palette. I'm going to read a book that I really have nothing, no idea of what it is about. And I'm going to make sure I do read it. And this is a way of becoming more conscious of the things in your life and the conditions that you are in. And that is also still to say, if I can say it again, You can't condition yourself to anything. You still have to be aware of the things that you can't eat simply because they're not edible. (laughs) And it might be that if they're having a relationship with someone in your life, that it is the case that they're not going to change and they're not good for you. And you simply shouldn't be accepting them as part of your palate. So I hope you've enjoyed these words. I hope you can understand this idea of the perception palette and experiment with changing it around and be aware of when something's coming into a different, when you get the curveball, when you get given something that's outside of your palate range, be aware of that because that's a chance to open. Really, we should be using this as a stepping stone towards being open to everything and being able to experience everything. Maybe that's a bit too far of a stretch for today, but it's a long-term goal. Just have it in the back of your mind. as something to reach later on when the time is right, something to work towards. And now we can finish, as we do most often, with a few minutes of quiet. So if it's comfortable for you to do so, stop what you're doing, sit down somewhere quietly for our spontaneous meditation. Close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths and relax.
just allow the words that you've been listening to bubble around. Notice what you're thinking about. Notice any reactions that you might have, if anything at all. And just listen to what's happening inside you. And just listen to your thoughts. That's all I have to say for now.